Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodowski, and welcome to the show. Today, the focus of the show is China. To get some perspective on the still rapidly expanding and second largest economy in the world, I spoke with Min Chi Lee, who teaches economics in Utah, and Kathy Walker, a Canadian trade unionist who has participated in a number of exchanges with Chinese unions. First up, my conversation with Min Chi Lee. Lee is a professor of economics at the University of Utah, and he specializes in China's economy. He previously taught at York University in Toronto and received his PhD from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Much earlier, perhaps in a different life, after Tiananmen Square, he spent time as a political prisoner in China in the early 1990s. Here is my chat with Min Chi Li. So, Min Chi, one of the most significant trends, I think, in China today, um, economically at least, is this seeming sort of long-term, longer-term slowdown in growth, yes. right? So while China is still growing really quickly by world historical standards, um, the pace is less mind-boggling than, uh, than a few years ago. Um, what, in your view, does this mean internally for China? Is this related to, um, to a change in the growth model, you know, from the export, uh, export-led investment sort of model to something that's more focused on um, increasing internal demand? Or is this just tied to slowing economies in the West? What's your take? Well, there, the immediate reason, uh, as you just mentioned, it has to do with the macroeconomic structure of the Chinese economy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, before 2008, uh, there were basically two drivers of the Chinese economy. Okay. On the one hand, it's investment, uh, mm-hmm. which was close to 50% of China's GDP. But the other major component was uh, exports. Mm-hmm. And then uh, net exports at its peak uh, reached almost like 10% of China's GDP in 2007. And uh, for in terms of net exports, because it's about exports less imports, yes. and then yeah. also for a large economy, this is very large magnitude. Mm-hmm. And so uh, before 2008, the Chinese economy was driven by both investment and exports. But after 2008, because of the global economic crisis, of course, the net exports decline as a share of China's GDP. So mm-hmm. China becomes more important, uh, more, more dependent mm-hmm. uh, on investment. And then moreover, in terms of investment, uh, Real estate investment has played a growing role right. after 2008. So in other words, property bubble mm-hmm. and has been fueling China's income growth. And, but the trouble is this kind of bubble cannot be sustained forever and right. then people cannot afford the high housing prices. So as this property bubble begin to be burst, and so property investment starts to decline and that starts to affect overall investment as well as the overall income growth. And so China's income growth rate has come down. So that's the immediate reason. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of the more long-term structural factors, uh, over the past decade also, the Chinese income growth has been basically based on, on the one hand, the exploitation of the uh, China's very large cheap labor force. Mm-hmm. Yes, it has been based on the exploitation of natural resources, especially the massive consum- consumption of coal. Mm-hmm. And then also, of course, the growing integration with the global capital market. But all three factors are now beginning to be undermined. So in addition to the global economic uh, crisis and stagnation, and uh, China is also reaching its limit uh, mm-hmm. to exploit the natural resources. And also the Chinese workers demand more political income rights that have put pressure 
on the weights. And so that starts to undermine China's current growth model. Right. Actually, I wanted to ask you about that. What, what about the, the Chinese workers? You know, how are these big changes impacting um, their lives? Because, yeah, as you're saying, it seems that Chinese workers are no longer this sort of, you know, dirt cheap labor force that, that, that was so, so adored by, by global capital. Well, back to the 1990s, and on the one hand, you had the uh, massive privatization of the state-owned enterprises. So mm -hmm. the state sector workers lost their historical socialist protection, and so many of them, tens of millions, uh, became unemployed. And then, in, on the other hand, you have uh, every year about 10 million mm -hmm. migrant workers moving from the countryside to the city, so right. both would dramatically increase the labor supply. Mm -hmm. And this kind of increasing labor supply adds pressure onto the workers, so mm -hmm. they tend to depress workers' bargaining power. But by the early 2000s, things start to change, and on the one hand, now we have less rural surplus labor force available, so mm -hmm. the growth rate of the uh, rural migrant workers mm -hmm. uh, has declined. And then on the other hand, uh, after one generation, uh, a new generation of workers, they uh, live in the cities, they demand, they are more politically conscious, and mm -hmm. they also start to learn how to get organized. And so we have now have a working class that is more uh, demanding in terms mm -hmm. of the kind of political and economic rights they desire to have, and also uh, is more capable of right. organizing. And so that starts to uh, raise the uh, workers' wages. Mm -hmm. And also the workers demand better working conditions, and of course that will put pressure on the capitalist profit rate. Right, and what what actually you're saying the workers are getting increasingly organized and, and politically conscious. What what is the scale of of labor unrest in China? We hear about these strike waves every once in a while here. Um, what's the scale of it? Sort of you know in the longer term, how is it being handled by the authorities too? Um, and has it been changing? Is each wave of strikes different, or is it a sort of growing movement? Well, there's no obviously there's no official statistics mm -hmm. about this kind of uh, labor disputes, but by some account, uh, you could have uh, more than uh, more than several hundred mm -hmm. mass incidents, uh, with each of them involving uh, more than one thousand people. Wow. And each month, and of course we are talking about something that's taking place over the entire country. Right? So mm -hmm. there are some people who uh, collect uh, this kind of information based on reports from social media informally. <laughs> and so that will provide some information. And, uh, but uh, another source of information is that we can look at uh, what's the uh, distribution of income, so that would give you some idea about how the balance of power between different social classes have changed. And so by that measure, uh, China's wage share declined in the 1990s, mm -hmm. but started to increase rapidly after about 2008. And so that gives you some idea about how the relations forces have changed. Right, so the strikes have actually started to become quite effective because... I think so, yes. Um, and are they mostly, are they mostly about wages, or do other things come into play? Um, benefits, social benefits, or political rights? At this point, is it, or is it mostly sort of you know wage demand driven? The, the uh, labor as unrest? far as the workers, the demands mostly about wages, mm -hmm. but there are some of them are also about working conditions, about pensions, 
uh, about right to organize collective bargaining. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to workers' protests, and there are also peasant protests. And that has to do with, in many cases, it has to do with uh, the peasant effect to defend their own right to the land because with this property boom, uh, mm -hmm. Some capitalists are encouraged to take over the land from the rural residents, but with very low compensation, so that has caused peasant protests. And then in addition to that, there have also been a growing protests from the urban middle class, and for reasons related to uh, pollution or related to uh, uh, because the, their rights for their own property, uh, for their own housing, uh, has not been adequately protected. Right. Actually, I, maybe to switch tracks a little bit, um, I've heard you talk about neoliberalism in China, and I think that's that's interesting because we hear this term applied to the major, you know, to the major Western economies. We've seen it here, you know, deregulation, privatization, decline of the welfare state, all these things in various forms in in the various Western states. But, you know, I think you say that China hasn't been immune to this process either. What, what does neoliberalism look like in China? Well, in yes, uh, basic form of uh, manifestation is not that much different from the rest of the world. And mm -hmm. also in takes in the form of privatization, liberalization. Uh, but basically what we are talking about is after World War II, there was a time because of the pressure of the working class movement, the pressure from the national liberation movement and the socialist state, the global capitalist class had to make concession to the uh, basically the oppressed people in the world. But after the 1970s, uh, we know that global capitalist class attempted to take back some of this concession. So that I think that was the essence of the uh, new liberal neoliberalism uh, on a global scale. Mm -hmm. And in the Chinese case, and we are talking about the current ruling class try to roll back some of the historical gains in the socialist period. And so in that sense, that also part of the global neoliberal counter-revolution. And has this changed recently? I know we've seen some of the leadership seem to now these days make sort of, you know, gentler statements and both about the social tensions within China and all of that, are they trying to sort of roll back these kinds of trends and, and, and you know, and, and also this has to do with putting the brakes sort of on the growth as well? Right, right. Now, China has been moving towards capitalism since about uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, and I think in terms of the basic relations production, it has completed the capitalist transition by the turn of the century. And then, uh, since then, because of these growing tensions, I think for a while there was this debate within the Chinese leadership around the time of 2010 to 2012 and about whether they want to continue this new liberal path or instead uh, would they pursue a more state-directed model of development. Mm -hmm. And with Bo Xilai, and who was the party secretary of the city of Chongqing, and for a while uh, championed this model uh, of... Uh, social reform at the city of Chongqing. Uh, but then, of course, because of the internal power struggle, and uh, he was purged from the party. And right, he was arrested. And... Arrested, yes, yes. And uh, so, uh, as a result of this kind of struggle, I think the new liberal win basically uh, has won the, uh, won the battle. And uh, so, since then, uh, China has been pushing for more new liberal uh, style so-called economic reform, although because of the 
resistance from the people on the one hand, and then some kind of uh, internal inertia within the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. The pace may not have been as fast as some of the neoliberal wind desire to have. And has has the environmental crisis also sort of uh, had its impact on this? Because I think that's the other thing where I've, I think we've seen the Chinese leadership making some noise about mm-hmm. about climate change, even about you know some of right. these emissions targets. Right. Um, but on the other hand, China is you know already the largest emitter yes. of of greenhouse gases. Yes. What is the scale of the environmental crisis, and how is it? How is it impacting on the politics and, and, and the economy within China as well? Well, the environmental crisis, of course, is uh, uh, very close to a breaking point, you, mm-hmm. you might say. And then uh, because of the China's contribution to the global mm-hmm. greenhouse gas emission, and uh, also it's now almost 30% of the global emissions, basically, mm-hmm. unless China is committed, to emission reduction, otherwise there's no way for this uh, climate stabilization to be achieved. Uh, but unfortunately, despite many of the talks, mm-hmm. and I don't think the current Chinese government is very serious uh, about the emission reduction, and of course there has been lots of investment uh, mm-hmm. on renewable energy, but on the other hand, uh, China continues to invest massively on coal-fired uh, mm-hmm. power plants, and as well as other, uh, you know, with this growth of the private uh, car fleet, mm-hmm. and China's oil consumption continue to grow, so all of this would contribute to uh, emission growth. But in some cases, and where the pollution has become so serious, so they have direct uh, impact on people's health, uh, on people's condition of life, and mm-hmm. so that has caused a popular rebellion. So that has forced some local governments to abandon uh, some of the pollution-intensive industries. And in addition to that, we all know that air pollution these days in China has become very serious. Right. So, so uh, basically, for several months uh, every year, uh, people in the big cities in eastern China has to suffer very heavy smog. And uh, so the uh, government could no longer ignore that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so far, what they have done uh, is not so much about the uh, underlying root of the problem, it's more about symptoms, like the mm-hmm. central government would order the steel factories around Beijing mm-hmm. uh, either to be shut down uh, without caring about what happened to unemployed workers or just order them to move to some other places. Right. And uh, they're having some effort to uh, transform coal into gas and then hopefully by burning gas yes. uh, in the city instead of coal directly, <laughs> that may reduce air pollution in the city. Right. But by transforming coal into gas, <laughs> that by itself is very energy intensive. Yes. And it would emit more greenhouse gases. Right. The emissions are also there. Um, I have to wrap, wrap things up. Maybe as a last, you know, you mentioned, we talked about the, the workers' struggle. Um, and the workers, you know, struggling for higher wages. You've, you've talked about some of the peasants as well, um, pushing back against local governments. Um, some of these environmental things that, that, you know, are tied with the middle class in China. Very briefly, and you know, is there a more unified sort of social movement growing in China? Or are these still sort of point by point struggles that for the next few years is just going to sort of simmer, you know, simmer onwards in the, in the same way? 
Well, the, at the moment, we are still talking about point-by-point point, mm -hmm. uh, social movement. And, but because we have this underlying contradiction, right? They are all related to China's capitalist accumulation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so at some point, you could see that because of this growing contradiction of the accumulation, and so th this different type of social movement could converge and merge into a more broader mm -hmm. challenge against China's current economic and social system. Mm -hmm. uh, so when that happens, and then the current regime of accumulation may have reached a point that is no longer sustainable. Thanks a lot, Minxi. Thank you very much. That was Minxi Li, professor of economics and China specialist. My next guest is Kathy Walker. Kathy was a longtime health and safety officer with the Canadian Auto Workers Union, now part of Unifor. Both while still at CAW and now during her retirement, she has participated in a number of exchanges with Chinese trade unions and has a unique perspective on trade unionism both here in Canada and across the Pacific in China. Here is Kathy Walker. So Kathy, you're a longtime trade uni unionist in Canada, uh, but you've gone on a number of these exchanges and fact-finding missions to China. Uh, you just went actually on a, on a recent trip organized by the BC Federation of Labor this summer. From what you saw, what is the state of, Chinese, of the Chinese labor movement in 2014, and what's changed maybe from your past visits? Well, I, I think uh, I'm quite encouraged with uh, what's happening with the Chinese labor movement uh, today. Certainly, there's uh, spontaneous upwellings of uh, labor militancy uh, at the shop floor level, and I think that's really helping to drive a lot of change uh, in China that is really benefiting the whole of the working class. Things like the overall uh, wages are going up faster than the GDP, which is uh, just great and uh, it's, uh, taking place as a result of uh, worker struggle. So uh, what I've really noticed is, uh, particularly since 2010, that uh, this uh, labor mil militancy is really uh, occurring all over the place and really unabated, which is great. Right, and that I think that that's a little different from the picture that we often have or see in the media of Chinese trade unions, which, which are seen as largely... Um, not so independent, maybe, right? So the single there's a single uh, central trade union federation, the All China Federation of Trade Unions, um, and according to to a lot of the people, it's you know beholden to the party and business elites. Is this too simplistic a picture? What what's your experience with with the independence of China's trade unions? I think it is too too simplistic a picture. Uh, there's no question that some unions in some workplaces uh, basically haven't changed in uh, you know the last. Uh, 50 years, you know, they, they are, are certainly beholden to, to the party and the only way that they have changed uh, is now to be beholden to business interests. But I think there's a whole uh, number of other unions that are doing a tremendous amount to try and uh, change to become uh, more effective as trade unions. Um, certainly at the shop floor level, there's active uh, encouraging of electing working class leadership, shop floor leadership, rather than having them appointed by the party or by the boss, which is great. And these are a big uh, public um, efforts by uh, the mainstream unions, which I think is, uh, is terrific. And uh, you see a lot of uh, statements of wanting to be uh, quite separate from uh, business interests and from the party. And um, 
to varying degrees, uh, they're having success. And so it's a very interesting to see in this enormous country of China, in fact, how different unions are based on uh, where you go, who you meet with, and what kind of workplaces you visit. And maybe this maybe this is a bit too general, but in what ways does this, especially you were saying at the at the shop floor level, in what ways does the Chinese model or or what you've seen of Chinese trade unionism compare to Canada, specifically at this level of of the individual workplace? Well, I think that uh, probably too often you still see uh, what we would call company unions uh, in workplaces. And that's uh, very disappointing when you run across them, where they obviously, uh, the leadership has in fact been appointed by the boss. Uh, and that's always disappointing. But there are lots of workplaces in which the rank and file workers are certainly driving change, where they're they're making demands. They want to make sure that there's uh, collective bargaining taking place. You get a huge interest on the part of uh, unions throughout the country now into trying to figure out how does collective bargaining take place. Uh, I would say that's the number one question I've been asked in the last uh, six, seven years by delegations that have come to Canada or when I've gone over there. And they want explanations in great detail. How do you bargain with the boss? Which is a, quite a different role than uh, what Chinese unions used to play, which is you know, in the socialist period, I mean, workers to some degree were the boss, but that is certainly no longer the case. What kind of tactics have the unions been using outside of collective bargaining uh, to get the kind of wage gains that we've been seeing, which from we know in, in the last number of years have actually been uh, quite substantial in, in, in many cases? Well, what you've really seen is a, a large number of workers in workplaces that are getting organized themselves with the, usually with the tacit um, approval of the established union in the workplace, but certainly not always. And uh, they're organizing strikes. And it's these strikes uh, that are uh, driving change in China. Um, it is phenomenal, uh, the number of strikes that take place, often extremely well thought out uh, by the work, workplace leadership, uh, often a, completely, a complete surprise uh, to the employer when people uh, are angry and walk off the job. And it may be an issue of wages, certainly, and often is, but often uh, there are justice issues, you know, where the, the employer has just been really miserable to people, and uh, people just don't want to take it anymore. So they walk off the job. And what we would call here wildcats, um, but very effective, often very short, uh, and uh, they extract um, often very significant improvements from the employer. So they've been able to win to win some concessions through through wildcats in, in the vast majority Absolutely. of cases. Absolutely, yeah. I would say it's a rare uh, wildcat that doesn't result in some positive improvement. And um, uh, the employers, if they want production to proceed, um, they, you know, they may not concede everything, but they're certainly going to concede a lot. I mean, we've seen uh, wildcats in uh, in Honda, for example, resulting in 24% wage increases, spreading to other uh, 
uh, parts plants, and they're they're getting 40% wage increases. I mean, these kind of levels are absolutely unheard of in Canada. Now, granted, people are starting from a fairly low level, but certainly on a percentage basis, those those gains are huge. And these are largely these are largely taking place in these in the coastal cities in in, in either in the special economic zones or or, or close by, but in, in this you know in, in the sort of industrial export sort of oriented heartland of China. Um, are there big, and these are quite you know quite new new areas um, of China. Are there big generation generational divides within the Chinese workforce? Um, are young workers who are born in these cities um, or have come of age there different from their parents? And how how are demands about work sort of changing as generations change? I think young workers um, don't have the same um, ideological commitment to building uh, an enterprise that their parents did because their parents often uh, had the opportunity to work in a state-owned enterprise where all kinds of things were looked after for them. Not only uh, decent wages, but also Housing was provided, transportation, food subsidies, fuel subsidies, uh, you know, all of that sort of thing. So today, of course, workers don't have, uh, rarely have those kind of guarantees. So I think they they see their interests as being quite different from the employer. And certainly when they see extremely wealthy uh, business people uh, doing exceptionally well and they're doing quite poorly, I think that that... uh, expresses itself in, in collective rage sometimes. So I think that's uh, that's been a very good development and certainly the generational difference is particularly apparent between the uh, migrant workers, uh, the first generation, that left the countryside, they left the farms to come to the city in probably the biggest uh, migration in, uh, in world history. Uh, similar to the situation in, say, in England where you have the enclosure acts and other ways of getting peasants off the land into the factories. Well, in China, there was just all sorts of attraction coming to the coastal cities, finding work, but the first generation went back. They were always intending to go back to the farm, but the new generation, they've either been born there or uh, they've grown up in a family where they just assumed that they were going to be working on the coast and they want to stay. They're, they're not going to go back to the farm. They really are the new industrial proletariat, and uh, they number in the tens of millions. And making demands to be able to sustain a lifestyle there, right? Absolutely. They, they, uh, they've uh, been to Paris, and uh, they want uh, what they see everybody else having. Uh, why shouldn't they? Summing up a little bit and, and seeing as you've been back and forth a bit, what can this renewed Chinese militancy, worker militancy, um, teach Canadian workers? Right. I mean, you said they've been curious about our collective bargaining and, and you've been sharing a lot of knowledge. But to what extent um, are the roots of worker activism in China similar? And and what, what can we learn from them? I think what you, we see in China is similar to the early days of the labor movement in Canada where workers did organize uh, in a militant fashion. They did organize uh, wildcat strikes, and uh, they did extract um, great victories uh, from their employer from time to time. We have uh, been extremely passive, I think, in the labor movement here. And uh, if we're ever going to do anything more than stagnate in terms of wages and in terms of union growth, 
I think uh, we've got to take some inspiration from the Chinese workers and uh, get back to uh, fighting the boss. Fighting back really does make a difference. Right. So import not just cheap cell phones, but uh, labor union tactics as well, hey? I think so. I I think we've got a lot to learn. Thanks a lot, Kathy. Thank you very much, Mikhail. That was Kathy Walker, who offered a unique perspective on trade unionism in China. That's all for this week. Talk to you again in two weeks. Until then.